please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. You may be thinking about converting your traditional IRA because of the down market. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, talks with Vanguard Retirement Specialist, Maria Bruno, on whether now is the time. Plus, Netflix is going from ad-free to ad-supported to attract new subscribers. Our analyst explains what it means for investors, and we'll tell you how your smartphone might be hurting your portfolio's performance. This is Investing Insights. Welcome to the new Investing Insights. I'm your host, Ivana Hampton. The new format features a mix of market news, analyst insights, and personal finance tips. And let's begin with a look at the Morningstar headlines. FedEx is planning to deliver major cost cuts. The world's largest express package provider's Q1 earnings report showed mixed results. It reported an increase in revenue, but a bigger-than-expected dip in package volume. FedEx says online shopping habits are returned to normal, and the global economy is softening. Morningstar thinks inflation and a lag in responding to increased demand led to a dip in FedEx operating profit margin in August. The shipping giant has implemented cost cuts for fiscal 2023, and that's expected to produce more than $2 billion in savings. We don't expect to significantly alter our $220 estimate of what we think FedEx stock is worth. We believe the shares are undervalued. Ford has warned this third quarter results will reflect supply chain issues that led to tens of thousands of partially built vehicles. The carmaker calls unfinished vehicles awaiting parts such as chips, vehicles on wheels, and it's been an ongoing problem due to the chip shortage and other world issues. The so-called vehicles on wheels are high-margin, light truck models, including pickups. However, Ford expects them to be completed and delivered to dealerships in the fourth quarter. So it's not changing its full-year outlook for adjusted earnings before interest and taxes. Ford says its third quarter adjusted operating results will be between $1.4 and $1.7 billion. And that's well below the definitive consensus. The company says it sees inflation-related supplier costs about $1 billion higher in the quarter than expected. Morningstar is not changing its $24 estimate of what it thinks Ford's stock is worth. Ford is scheduled to report third-quarter earnings on October 26. New research shows that investors trade differently on their smartphones than they do on their personal computers. Morningstar behavioral researcher Samantha Lama says that using financial institutions' free apps may affect financial decisions. Perhaps we might be better off sticking to things like social media posts and video calls on our phones. Researchers recently examined the trading behavior of retail investors to see if there were differences in trades carried out on a smartphone versus a personal computer. They looked at the trading activity of each investor across platforms on a monthly basis, and the results suggest that the likelihood of buying riskier assets and chasing past returns went up for trades done on a smartphone. Lama says making investing accessible to more people is a great accomplishment. However, excessive attention on investing without the proper education can lead to errors and return chasing behavior. And that could be driving the dangers of smartphone investing. You can read more from Samantha Lamas. A link is in the show notes. Netflix is expected to launch a cheaper ad-supported plan soon. The streaming pioneer will join rivals in competing for subscribers who don't mind watching commercials if they can pay less. Neil Macker is a senior equity analyst for Morningstar Research Services and covers Netflix. Hi, Neil. How are you? Good. How are you today? 
Well, I want to talk about Netflix and let's get started with this first question. So Netflix took this position where it was opposed to putting ads on a streaming platform. Why has the company decided now to launch a cheaper ad-supported plan? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that Netflix had was a differentiation against what we considered cable or pay TV, where ads were there, but you were still paying for the service. So Netflix was trying to differentiate themselves. Um, one of the things that's happened to Netflix, particularly here in the United States, is they're sort of hitting a level of saturation. They have over 70 million households subscribed to Netflix in the United States. Um, and so at this point, they think that their pricing, which has increased tremendously if you're a Netflix surprisor, if you've known over the last decade or so, has gotten to the point where there are a number of people who are interested in Netflix, but can't afford the price point that they have even on their basic plan, which is around $10 a month. Um, one of the keys for the company also is the fact that they have only two levers when we look at revenue growth. One is subscriber growth, and the other is pricing. Now, we look at subscriber growth in the United States. They've lost about 2 million subscribers in the front half of the year. So that's slowed down in the U.S. And then secondly, um, you know, we've had a number of price increases over the last few years, and they may be hitting a ceiling on that as well. So this is just another way to find a stream of revenue for them. And another key for the company is that there have been a number of ad-supported streaming platforms, whether they're like Hulu or completely ad-supported like Tubi or uh, Pluto, which have also done very well in the United States as well. So that shows that there is a market for people who are looking for streaming content and are willing to watch ads to take a lower price or a free price at all. All right. So you recently wrote about how there are more subscribers outside the U.S. than in the country. Well, how can Netflix use that to their advantage? So I think another key for the company is that if you look at where their growth is going to come from in terms of subscribers, it's obviously not the U.S. And then if we look at Western Europe, they're also getting a little close to saturation there as well. So a lot of their growth is going to come in what we think is more emerging or lower per capita income household in our markets, whether that's India or Southeast Asia as well. Um, so in India, they have really been getting trounced by not only Disney, which is under a hot star Disney there, but Amazon as well, both who are priced well below them. Uh, in order to differentiate the product, they could sort of do an ad-supported product there as well. So it helps them there as well. Um, also in Latin America, where they're doing all right at this point, but this is another avenue of growth for them, basically. So by uh, launching an ad-supported tier, it lets them not only capitalize on the base that they have in the United States here to get more revenue out of that and to find the marginal subscriber, but also to grow subscriber growth outside of the U.S. too in markets where, you know, maybe $8, $9 a month, even on, which is the pricing in, let's say, India, is a little high for a lot of consumers there that may still be interested in their content. All right. So what we're seeing now is streamers bringing sports onto their platforms. Amazon has Thursday Night Football. Disney has ESPN. Apple TV Plus is showing pro baseball. Can a streaming service grow without live sports and can they compete without it? I think you can, can compete and it is, but I, I do think one of the things you're doing is, is there's the sports is becoming a, a form of differentiation. Everybody now has original content, right? Everybody has this. And so unless you're a Disney or let's say even an HBO and you have these long-term franchises and things like that, it's very hard when you're creating new franchises to differentiate your content. Um, and that's true for Netflix or Apple Plus or somebody else like that as well. So having sports is a way to differentiate. It also increases um, the number of people in the household that may be interested in watching the service as well. We know that males 18 to 48 have traditionally been relatively low uh, consumers of what we consider general entertainment, and sports has been a way to, to reach those people as well. So that is one of the reasons I think a lot of these platforms. I think Netflix can complete, compete without those um, live sports. Um, 
we will see how the company changes their mind, um, given as you know, we talked about earlier, advertising was something that they never talked about and all of a sudden is now on the plate. While live streaming has never been something that they've talked about and that they've always said that they don't need, it could come down the line. But I think in the near term, I think it's unlikely that Netflix goes out and aggressively bids to get sports rights here in the U.S. at least. So what do you think of Netflix stock value? Yeah, so uh, under our star rating system here at Morningstar, we right now have more, uh, Netflix is a three-star. Um, our fair value estimate is 280. Um, if the stock pulls back a little bit from the current levels, which are around 230, 235, into, let's say, the teens, 210s, 220s, low, low 220s, we think it may be a good investable idea at that point. But right now, we think the risk reward is set that like, if you're not an investor already, we wouldn't necessarily recommend getting into Netflix today. And if you're looking at the streaming industry for other opportunities besides Netflix, where should you look? Yeah, so our top idea within sort of the streaming area right now would be Disney. Obviously, Disney has not only Disney Plus, but ESPN and Hulu as well here in the U.S. Um, so we think that there's growth there. The other key for Disney versus, let's say, on Netflix is you're buying a diversified business with a lot of sources of not only revenue, but free cash flow as well, which is important as most of these companies are burning cash to compete here. So we think Disney um, right now is, is an attractive buy. Um, obviously, inflation will have some worries on the parks business, but we do think the parks business powers through that over the longer term. Um, while linear uh, subscribers are declining here in the U.S., it's still a business that generates a lot of cash with, between not only ESPN, but Disney, uh, the Disney Channel and ABC as well. So we think Disney is are probably one of those ideas that you know has gotten a little cheap now, a little overworried about inflation. And we think longer term, we think Disney is a great place to put your money. All right. Well, thank you, Neil, for your time today. Thank you. Tax-free growth could appeal to some people with traditional IRAs. Converting to a Roth IRA has some trade-offs. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, discusses that with Vanguard Retirement Specialist, Maria Bruno. I am Christine Benz for Morningstar. With many investors' portfolio balances down so far in 2022, we've been hearing a lot of chatter about whether the time is right for Roth conversions. Joining me to discuss some key considerations in that area is Maria Bruno. She's head of U.S. Wealth Planning Research for Vanguard. Maria, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So um, let's start with a really basic question. What are the key advantages of converting traditional IRA or traditional 401k balances to Roth? So there's a few key benefits, the obvious one being tax-free growth. Um, so when you convert assets, you're taking an asset with an embedded tax liability, paying the income tax on that, and then converting it to tax-free growth. The other thing is no lifetime RMDs, and that's a big one. Um, for IRAs, account owners are not required to take distributions during their lifetime. Um, beneficiaries will, but they're tax-free. So the tax-free growth coupled with no RMDs is quite powerful. Um, and then there's also flexibility in terms of being able to access, whether it's contributions or converted dollars after the holding five-year holding period. So there's a lot of flexibility that goes with Roth uh, accounts that we don't see with traditional tax-deferred type vehicles. Um, and then there's even more flexibility once you reach age 59 and a half. So there's lots of tax benefits um, to incorporating Roth into your portfolio. And that's basis of, of tax diversification, holding different account types, whether it's taxable, tax-deferred Roth. 
Okay. So you referenced that this is not a free lunch, that you do owe taxes typically when you do a conversion. So let's talk about how those taxes are calculated. And I guess another key question that is probably on investors' mind is whether there's any workaround, whether there's any way to reduce them. Can you talk about that? Sure. So a Roth conversion is a taxable event. Um, so for many, when you're doing the conversion, it's a, it's a distribution from a traditional deferred account, whether it's a 401k or an IRA. Um, so the amount that you convert, typically the full balance is pre-tax balance, meaning the entire amount is subject to income taxes. Um, so it becomes a line item on your tax return when you file your taxes. So the mechanics, when you take the distribution, you have the option of withholding taxes and converting the net amount or converting the whole amount. And then the key there is you want to make sure you have money set aside, most likely in a cash account when it's you know, tax time and you have to pay that tax liability. And in fact, that is the best way to optimize the Roth conversion. If you can pay the income taxes with non-retirement assets, that allows the full amount of the, um, the, the IRA or the 401k to move over into the Roth account and then grow tax-free. Okay, so, so those in that are case, the mechanics of it. Sure. In that case, you wouldn't uh, have withholding taken out as Correct. you do that distribution. Okay, as you do that Correct. conversion. So um, let's talk about what you've called kind of a, a sweet spot or a really good life stage to consider these conversions. You say that in the post-retirement pre-required minimum distribution years, those can be really op opportune years to consider doing conversions. Can you talk us through what the benefits are? Yes, we call that the, the Roth conversion zone. It's a really good time to think about how do I, and it's basically what you're doing is you're planning for RMDs and creating tax, tax diversification where you may not otherwise have, have had that, right? Many people have deferred their um, contributions into tax deferred balances and they have these large tax deferred balances which will be subject to RMDs um, at age 72, and then large tax liabilities to go along with that. So when you think about planning for RMDs, you want to do that well in advance. So those optimal years can be, and I say can, it's not for everyone, but it can be those years leading up to RMDs, particularly before you start claiming Social Security, you might be in a relatively lower tax bracket. So those may be instances where it may make sense to do a series of partial IRA conversions. Um, and you're creating that tax diversification. You're also lowering the traditional deferred balances, which then also lower future RMDs. So basically, you're accelerating taxes today. The plan is to pay them at a relatively lower rate and then enjoy the tax-free growth as well as potentially lower RMDs later. So that's the theory behind it. Um, and we are seeing more retirees. The numbers are quite low. Um, you know, it's still tough to be to accelerate tax liabilities. Um, but I think more individuals, probably with the help of financial planners, are becoming more educated around RMDs and the tax torpedo that they sometimes call and start planning for RMDs well in advance of, of age 72. The other thing to keep in mind with these RMDs is that um, the pre-tax balances, much like the conversion, are subject to income taxation. So there are other triggers, whether it's the taxation of Social Security or Medicare Part B surcharges. There are different thresholds um, and you might spike into uh, different marginal brackets as a result of that. So it is a way to smooth this overall tax liability through retirement. Okay. Um, so it sounds like get some tax help, tax help in this area. One question right, yeah. that 
comes up a lot in this area, Maria, is whether someone is too old to convert. I sometimes hear from retirees who have been retired for 10 years or more, and they say, well, what if I'm not around to enjoy that tax-free growth? So a question is, can you be too old to convert? Not necessarily. It depends what the goal of the money is. Um, if it is, you know, if you have someone who's a higher net worth individual and the goal is to pass those assets to their children or grandchildren, you really want to think about what your tax bracket is today relative to who is going to be enjoying the money later. Um, if you're passing it to children or, or grandchildren who are in a higher tax bracket, for instance, then it may make sense to convert those dollars today. Uh, again, it's the same notion of, of what you're doing for planning for RMDs. It may make sense to make the conversion today, pay the taxes at a presumably lower rate, and then pass a tax-free asset, income tax-free asset, um, to the beneficiary. So that's kind of the way you want to think about it. I would actually reframe it and say you're never too old to consider a Roth conversion. Whether or not you do it, it depends upon what your goal for the account is. Um, but everyone should kind of think through, you know, what is the goal of those monies and when does it make sense to, to pay the taxes? Um, the one thing I do want to stress, though, is you want to be careful in terms of how much you convert. It's not reversible. Um, so generally speaking, you cannot recharacterize these monies once you convert. So you do want to be careful how much you convert and so as you don't bump yourself into a higher marginal bracket inadvertently. Okay, good point on that. So we've been hearing a lot about conversions in 2022, in part because many individuals' balances are down. We've right. seen the stock and bond markets go down. Can So can you walk us through how market environment might fit into this? So we've kind of talked about how life stage and eventual goals might be a factor, but how about market effects? Right, so that's the mechanics of it. And I think you've talked about this too in terms of the silver lining of market volatility. So when we have this, are there opportunities to, to incorporate some tax techniques? And Roth conversions can be one of them, right? So if the account balances are suppressed, then it may make sense to, to take a look and see whether a conversion is appropriate. A um, couple things to keep in mind is, while you can be surgical around which type of, which account you convert or which asset you convert, um, and you want to be for purposes of maybe rebalancing. Um, so you want to be mindful in terms of what asset you convert. But then when you go to actually calculate the tax liability, um, the IRS doesn't let you cherry pick which asset you're going to use the basis on. You need to aggregate all of your uh, IRA balances um, and use that as a, as a basis for calculating what your taxable amount is. So there's the mechanics of it in terms of which asset and which investment you convert. But then when you go to calculate the taxes, you have to aggregate all of your deferred balances. The IRS doesn't let you cherry pick um, the most suppressed asset and then pay taxes on that. You have to aggregate everything. Okay, that, that's super helpful. This is a perennially hot topic among our investors, IRA conversions. Thank you so much to for being here, Maria, to walk us through some of the key considerations. Happy to. Thank you, Christine. Thanks, Christine and Maria. Hey, listeners, I'm asking you to please send us your comments about what you think of the new format of Investing Insights if you haven't chimed in yet. What are you waiting for? Email us at podcast at morningstar.com. Thanks to podcast producer Jake Bankerson, who puts this show together. And I'm thanking you for listening to Investing Insights. I'm Ivana Hampton, a senior multimedia editor at Morningstar. Take care. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. 
Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.